The passage that we're going to look at uh, here in Acts chapter 21 is going to give us the opportunity tonight to focus on the subject of the will of God. Um, I've said it, I don't know how many times, that the two most difficult questions for me to deal with or try to answer or counsel people along the lines are these. Number one, am I saved? And number two, what is God's will for my life? Those are are difficult questions. Brother Tyler recently preached on the subject of doubting your salvation. And he was very honest, and he's very open, he's very transparent about his struggles with that, even growing up in a pastor's home. Um, And he talked to you about his days in Bible college and the struggles that he had and uh, how they led to depression and and so many other things. And and as he sat there, as I sat there and he was preaching and he was sharing his story with you, I, I remembered that so vividly. And I remember my own frustrations, not at him. I wasn't frustrated with him at all. I was, I was heartbroken for the struggle that he was going through. My frustration was in the fact that I could not give him the answer he was looking for. I could not tell my son whether he was saved or lost. That was my frustration. And I wept with him and prayed with him. And and I'm glad that that God gave him the answer and he's got it nailed down and all of that. It's wonderful. And then every now and then folks will come to you and talk to you about the will of God and trying to find God's will for their life. And I can't tell people what God's will for their life is. At least in terms of specifics. Now there are some things, and I'll mention this later in the message, there are some things, some general things, about God's will for their life, and I can tell them about those things because they are also God's will for my life. There are some things that, that, it, that are God's will for all of our lives as believers. But here's what I'm convinced of tonight. A heart that is saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, and submitted to God can know His will. Now let's get to our text tonight, Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass... After we were gotten from them, them would have been the elders in the church at Ephesus. Paul had spent some time with them specifically. He had shared his heart with them. He had given them some warnings and he let them know that this was going to be the last time that they would see him. And they were sad. And so Paul is leaving them and and, uh, they launched, it says, and He says, we came uh, with a straight course unto Coos, and the day following unto Rhodes, and from thence unto Patera, and finding a ship sailing over unto Phoenicia, we went aboard and set forth. And I've read that, and every time I've read that over the course of this week, I've thought, how 
how indicative of the life of a missionary. We went here, and then we went there, and then we went there, and then we went there, and it seemed like we were always on the move. That's the life of a missionary. Look at verse 3. Now when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed unto Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unlade her burden. And finding disciples, and it's always good when you go to another town to, to take time to find disciples. Find a church that preaches the gospel. And so Paul went and he searched out some folks who were of kindred spirit and like mind and like heart. And he said, we tarried there seven days. Who said to Paul, these disciples who he had spent time with now for seven days... They said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. Now let's stop there for a minute because there is some controversy about this part of Paul's life, especially as it relates to verse 4 and the phrase, through the Spirit. And here, here's the, the controversy, and if you look at it and you look at different commentaries and things, you'll find that this, this uh, controversy exists, and here it is. Because Paul eventually did go to Jerusalem. But where the controversy comes in is this. Was his going to Jerusalem an act of obstinate disobedience, or was it a determined act of obedience? That's the controversy. Now, the Bible is not shy about sharing the failures of its people. I mean, it just blurts it out there like it is. I'm talking about men like Noah and Abraham and David and uh, Peter and others who failed God miserably and publicly and the Word of God is not shy about sharing those things with us. And Paul was certainly not immune from failure himself. He had the same sin nature that we all have, and certainly he had a, the ability to fail and to fail miserably. So, as we look at this controversy, there's really no way that we can say that Paul would have never committed such an egregious act of disobedience, but that he did not disobey God in going to Jerusalem is evident, I believe, for several reasons. Let me share those with you real quick. Number one, as you study the life of Paul, you'll see that at other times in his life, he showed a sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit. For example, uh, for example uh, there in Acts chapter 16, where the Spirit of God forbade him from going into Asia, he didn't go. He was obedient. He did what the Spirit of God told him to do. And then just a few verses later, in the same chapter, when the Spirit of God tells him to go to Macedonia, he obeyed. And the Bible says that he did it immediately. So I would submit to you tonight that there is a pattern of obedience in Paul's life. 
Second, the Holy Spirit never prohibited Paul from going to Jerusalem. What the Spirit did is warn him about what he would encounter in Jerusalem. If you still have your Bible open, turn back a page or just look across the page, whatever the case may be, in chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, verses 22 and 23. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. So here's what Paul said. He said, I'm absolutely convinced in my heart that I am supposed to go to Jerusalem. Bound in the Spirit is, is, uh, um, is how he said it. I'm bound in the Spirit. And what he was saying is I'm absolutely convinced. I have this overwhelming sense of need to go to Jerusalem in spite of the fact that the Holy Spirit has told me many times already that I'm going to suffer as a result of going there. But again, the Spirit did not say, don't go. Here's a, a third reason to believe that Paul was not disobedient in going to Jerusalem. It's also found in, in chapter 20. And it's where he described his mission to Jerusalem as the ministry that God had given him. Look at it, verse 24. But none of these things move me. Paul said, I know what the Spirit of God is saying, and I, I know what others are saying, and I, I, I know that, that it's not going to be easy in Jerusalem, but that's not changing my mind. He said, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. And here it is, look at this church, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. I think you would agree with me tonight that it would be difficult for the Spirit to forbid Paul from doing something that God himself had called him to do. And finally, the scriptures nowhere suggest, nowhere, that Paul sinned by going to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, as we'll see as we continue our study, after he got there, here, here's what he declared in chapter 23 in verse 1. He said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And then he goes on in the next chapter and he says, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Now, to my thinking, it's difficult to see how Paul could say that he had a clear conscience if he had just flagrantly sinned against God. And so, Paul's going to Jerusalem, I am convinced, was the absolute perfect will for his life. So, we're preaching that what's going on entire. Well, here's what I believe is going on. The Spirit was showing Paul's friends that he was going to be arrested and persecuted in Jerusalem and in an attempt, an honest attempt to look out for his well-being, they said, Paul, don't go. 
Listen, don't go. Here's what's going to happen. You know there's going to be trouble there. You know you're going to suffer there. Paul, please don't go. But again, the Spirit did not tell him not to go. His friends told him not to go. You with me? All right, verse 5. And when we had accomplished those days, we departed and went our way, and they all brought us on our way with wives and children till we were out of the city, and we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. Again, I've got this picture in my mind that you see so often on Facebook or in other places where a missionary and his family, uh, they're, they're getting ready to board the plane, they're at the airport, they're getting ready to fly out to the field to, what, to which God has called them, and you see the, the church family there and their families there, and, and all these bags are packed, and, and that's what's going on here. They're, they're, they're joining Paul, and they're praying with him and asking God to bless his ministry. And when we had taken our leave, verse 6, one of another, we took ship, and they returned home again. And when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus and saluted the brethren, abode with them one day. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea, and we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven. And abode with him. And the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. Now, be turning back to Acts chapter 6 real quick. And let me depart for just a moment from the focus uh, and the subject of God's will. And let me just point out something to you tonight that I think we would miss, as I missed, the first three or four times I read over this passage. But yet I think it's something that, uh, that God would have us to at least consider tonight. Verse 8 mentions Philip the evangelist. Now, go to Acts chapter 6 and verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. Do you, you remember the context of Acts chapter 6? The church at Jerusalem had grown so fast... And it had grown so large that the apostles could not keep up with ministering to everybody like they should. Specifically the widows. They were beginning to complain that their needs weren't being met, that they weren't being ministered to. And so you'll remember that the apostles said, okay, here's what we want you to do. We want you to seek out seven men. And talk to them a little bit about the qualifications uh, up there, I think, in... Uh, uh, verse 3, men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, that we may appoint to this business. So they said, okay, here, church, we need your help because um, our priority is prayer and preaching. So we need you to seek out men to help us minister to the rest of the church body. And so they chose out seven men. Look at it in verse uh, uh, verse, verse 5, And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and who? Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. 
So Philip was one of the men chosen by the church to serve as a deacon, a servant. Later, God would use him to preach uh, the gospel in Samaria and many other cities. You remember in in Acts chapter 8 that it was Philip who preached the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, and he got saved. Now here's the point. Philip was chosen to serve alongside six other men. We read their names. The first one named in that list was a man named Stephen. Now, what do we know tonight about Stephen? Well, among other things, we know that he was stoned to death for his bold witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And who was there at Stephen's stoning? Paul was. It says there, and I'll just read it, And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Saul, this is before he got saved, was a persecutor of the church. He was a hater of Christians. He was a despiser of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he wreaked havoc in the church. And so now they're pulling, they're dragging this man out to the the edge of the city who was a preacher of the gospel and a bold witness for Jesus Christ. And they start hurling these huge stones at him. But before they did that, they took off their outer garments and they laid him at the feet of this man named Saul who stood there and watched them pound Stephen to death with these huge rocks. Now, here's what stood out to me. Philip, knowing Paul's past, knowing what he had done, no doubt, to many of his friends and to one of his fellow deacons, now welcomes this man into his own home. (laughs) And to me, that is an amazing example of God's grace in forgiveness. Philip received Paul into his own home, knowing who he was, knowing what he had done, and yet he was welcome. And church, I don't know who you may be holding a grudge against tonight. I don't know who you may be bitter at. I don't know who you're holding at arm's length. I don't know who you've got a bad spirit toward tonight, but I know this. Listen to me. I know this. With God's help, you can get over it. No, come on. With God's help, you can get over it. But preacher, you don't know what they did. Have they killed your friends? It doesn't matter. I'm telling you, with God's help, you can get over it. If Philip could love Paul and Paul could love Philip, then I think we can pretty much get over whatever issues we're dealing with tonight. By God's grace. And by the way, while forgiveness will not change your past, it will change your future. Amen. Now that's good preaching. I don't care who's doing it. Acts chapter 21 again. You with me? 
All right, we're going to get back on track here. I just had to throw that out there. Verse 10, And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, the girdle there is not what some of you may be thinking. This was not the forerunner to today's Spanx. Preacher, how do you know about Spanx? Because my wife used to sell them. That's how I know. And if you're a man here tonight and you wear man Spanx, I will take your man card at the end of the service. You need to be Spanx. The girdle was a belt. And Agabus, being a prophet of the Lord, took Paul's belt, he wrapped up his own hands and his own feet, and he said, this is exactly what's going to happen to the man to whom this belt belongs. So Agabus prophesied of Paul's suffering upon his arrival in Jerusalem, but again, get this tonight, church, he did not tell him not to go. But, note how the others who were there, including Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, Paul's traveling companion, notice how they interpreted, listen to this, God's will for Paul's life. They interpreted the information that Agabus gave to mean Paul shouldn't go. I'll show you, look at verse 12. And when we heard these things, Luke's talking about him and the other, other people, both we and they of that place besought him, that's Paul, not to go up to Jerusalem. Church, why are we so quick to pretend to know God's will for someone else's life? Us, like Paul, in the end, we're going to answer to God about this matter of his will in our life. Nobody else is going to answer. Nobody's going to be able to answer for Bill Prater when it comes to doing God's will in his life. And nobody's going to answer for you. You're going to answer for you, and I'm going to answer for me. I want you to listen. R. Kent Hughes wrote this in his commentary. We must not make our understanding of God's guidance conditional on our own happiness or sense of completeness. That's exactly what Luke, and listen, I, I believe with all my heart they were well-intentioned. I really believe that. I believe they loved Paul with all of their heart. They had the utmost respect for Paul. But that's exactly what they were doing. They were uh, uh, making their understanding of God's guidance conditional on their own happiness. They didn't want to lose Paul. They didn't want Paul to go. They wanted Paul to stay a part of their life. And so they were, they were 
they were basing God's will upon their own happiness. Church, listen very carefully. Nudge the person next to you and say, listen up. Listen up. Look at this. Sometimes, well-meaning people who love you very much can get in the way of God's will for your life because God's will for you doesn't match their will for you. Case in point, a number of years ago, we were at youth camp at Silver State, and a good pastor friend of mine came to me, and he said, Brother Prater, I, I've got a situation, and, and I'm, would you just pray with me about this? A young man in his youth department really felt like God was calling him to the ministry. But he was afraid to go home and tell, his, tell that to his mom and dad, because he knew that, that that would not fit their plans for his life. Their plans for his life was to go to college, get a degree, have a successful career like the rest of his siblings. And so this young man had a, a struggle going on on the inside. He knew that God was calling him to the ministry, but on the other hand, he was fearful about going home and, and sharing that with his parents. And it falls right into this. Sometimes well-meaning people who love you very much can get in the way of God's will for your life because God's will for you doesn't match their will for you. We need to be careful when trying to play the Holy Spirit in someone else's life. And we need to be careful not to intentionally make people feel bad for doing what they know to be God's will. Say, preacher, where'd that come from, verse 13? Then, then answered Paul, what mean ye to weep and to break mine heart. I said, what are you people doing? He said, for I am ready not, uh, not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul looks at them and he says, I can't, I can't believe what you're doing. You're tearing my heart out. You're ripping my heart out. You're crying and you're begging and you're pleading. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm struggling with this. They were making doing God's will incredibly difficult for Paul. And what Satan and his forces could not do, listen, was happening through his own brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know, we can do that in church sometimes. I think of, Brother Tyler mentioned single folks this morning. And I think sometimes that we think that every, every person, it's God's will for every person to get married. And so we'll come up to one of our, our, our faithful single folks and we'll give them a jab and say, hey, you know, when, when you're going to get married or we'll, we'll drop some, some joke about being married. When the truth of the matter is, 
it may be God's perfect will for them to never get married. And believe me, it's better to be single in God's will than it is to be married outside of God's will. And we're well-meaning and we're well-intentioned. But they're just trying to live out their singleness in the will of God. But we can make it awfully tough for them. Here's another one that I'm afraid I have probably been guilty of. A missionary family comes. And they're going to some crazy place. And so we say something like this, well, I just don't know how you do it. I just don't know how you can go over there and miss Christmas with your family and miss Thanksgiving with your family, and I don't understand how you can take your kids away from their grandparents and they'll never get to have birthdays and all of this. Okay, time out. Don't you think that they're struggling with that enough? Man, for us to bring that up? And so here we are, and they're going, why are you telling me this? My heart is already ripping out. And I'm just trying to help you tonight. Sometimes we can make it hard on people who are trying to live out God's will for their life. And I have probably been guilty of that. And I know that our missions conference is a ways away. It's, it's the end of April 2019. But let me just give you a heads up. We have a family coming. The Hetzers, they're going to Sri Lanka. And here's what you're going to see real quick when you meet the Hetzers. They have two special needs children. One of them is really, really, really needy. Let's not make that mistake. As well-meaning as we can be, let's not say, wow, man, how are you going to deal with this? And, and on and on and on and on. Why don't we just let them do God's will and say, man, you go get them. I'm, I'm just giving you a heads up. They're a unique family. Brother David preached here at our Amen Conference. He's going to be the keynote speaker at our, at our missions conference. Left a very successful ministry in Idaho because God called him to Sri Lanka. And don't, don't you think that they know how difficult it's going to be with two special needs kids? Absolutely. I mean, John and Misty, Bob and Scottsdale, they're very good friends with the Hatchers, and Misty would just kind of give us a head up. Preacher, that, that one, you got to watch out. He cannot be left alone one moment, or he'll have everything on the floor. Preacher, you need to put him in a hotel. Don't put them in a missions house, because he will tear it up. But yet, here's this missionary family, and they're all going to Sri Lanka. So how about we do this in April? Let's make it easy for them. Amen? Last week, Brother John Vaught talked to me about a, a situation. I don't even know how we got in the conversation, but talked to me about a situation in which a family he had previously known in another church were in the Phoenix, Scottsdale area, and they decided that they would attend services at Northway. And when Brother... John asked him why they were in town. They said that they were considering a move to that area. And so Brother John just asked him, why have you discussed this move, excuse me, with your pastor? And their answer was, in so many words, no. 
Because we know what he's going to do when we tell him. He's going to make us feel guilty and try to convince us to stay. Now, church, listen, that's not how it's supposed to be. I do believe that you should seek godly counsel in matters like that. I think it's biblical. I think it's absolutely biblical. I really do. And this is my own personal opinion. You can take it or leave it. I think you ought to invite your pastor to pray with you about things like that. But here's the conclusion I've, I've come to. Is that God does call some members away. I don't, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It, it's just the way it is. I believe that God does call some members away. But at the same time, Listen, at the same time, I'm absolutely convinced that God does call some members to stay. If everybody leaves, what are we going to do? I believe that God calls some away. I believe that God calls some to stay. But whether someone goes or stays, that ought to be based on the Lord's leading and not someone else's pleading. Whether that someone else is the pastor or parents or friends or whoever. Amen. Verse 14. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Now I don't believe. That that was merely a fatalistic resignation. I don't think it was like this. Well, whatever. Okay, we tried. He's just going to do what he wants to do. He's just going to go off there. So, let the will of the Lord be done. I don't think that was their approach. I believe that they had absolute confidence in Paul's walk with God and God's sovereignty and God's perfect plan for his life that they said this, then the will of the Lord be done. So, what are the takeaways from this part of Paul's life? I've got four. Here we go. Number one, God's will is real. God's will is real. The will of the Lord be done. It's awful hard to do something that doesn't exist. It's hard to do something that's not real. Following Paul's salvation in Acts chapter 9... God said this to him, he is a cho- or said this of him, he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So obviously God had a will for the life of Paul. And just as God had a specific will for Paul's life, God has a specific will for your life and for my life. But just as God has a will that is real, you and I have a will that is real. And if God's will can be obeyed by us, 
then it can also be disobeyed by us. Case in point, God had a will for Adam and Eve. He told them what that was. Take care of the garden. Be fruitful and multiply. It was just that simple. But they chose to exercise their will over God's will. And it not only cost them, but it also cost us. So be careful. Listen to me. Be careful about doing what's best for you and forgetting the other people in your life who may be adversely affected by your selfish choices. We can't, we can't watch the news or read anything online without being reminded that we're still paying the price for Adam and Eve's rebellion. God had a will for Abraham's life. His will was to give him a man-child through whom he would be a blessing to all nations. But Abraham rejected God's will and decided to assert his own will. And once again, it not only made his life hard, it has made our lives hard. Because the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac are still going at it, even tonight. And unfortunately, our nation has suffered greatly. Because of Abraham's decision to do his own will rather than God's will. Choosing your will over God's will can lead to disastrous consequences. Whether it's in who you marry, or your career, or your financial decisions, or purchasing decisions or your retirement, or whatever. I'm just telling you tonight, as your pastor, be careful. Be careful to do God's will and not your will. Number two, surrender to God's will right now. Watch this. Acts 9, 6, and he, talking about Paul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what would thou have me to do? I'm yours. I'm all in. I'm ready to do what you want me to do. I'm surrendered to doing whatever you want me to do. God, what is it? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou shalt do. And then we read this, But Lord, I need to know what you want me to do before I'm willing to do it. Do we read that? <laughs> Not even close. You know what we read? And Saul arose from the earth. Listen, if you really want to do the will of God, then you don't have to know ahead of time what it is. If you have truly surrendered your life to the will of God, it doesn't matter what it is, you're going to be willing to do it. But it all starts with surrender. Listen to John 7, 17. If any man will do his will, 
He shall know the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. Now look at that and tell me which one comes first, the knowing or the doing. Talk to me. The doing. We do, then we know. God said to Paul, what do you want me to do? God said, you get up and you go, and when you go, then you'll know. And so that's how we ought to treat God's will for our life. We don't wait for God to tell us. We, we're just His. We just do. Here's the deal. You surrender your life to God right now. I'm not just talking to young people. I'm talking to adults here tonight. Maybe you haven't come to that place in your life where you've said, God, I'm yours. I'm all in. I want to do what you want me to do. And you surrender your life right now to do whatever you know God wants you to do. And then, as you need to know more, he'll show you more. Does that make sense? Again, God told Paul, you go, then you'll know. It's like driving at night. You're driving down the road. And all you can see is what's in front of you for 100 or 150 feet. But as you keep driving to what you can see, all of a sudden what you couldn't see becomes apparent. And as you keep driving forward to what you can't see, your headlights reveal what you couldn't see earlier and now it's visible. Here's how God's will works in our life. We just do what we can see right now. We just, knew, we just do what we know right now is the will of God. For example, it's the will of God that we pray every day, a lot, that we spend time with God in prayer. It's God's will that we read our Bible. Those are simple things. We know that that's what God wants us to do. We know that it's God's will that we live holy. We know that it's God's will that we tithe and give offerings. We know it's God's will that we're faithful, that we serve in ministry, that we tell others about Jesus Christ. Those are some things that are God's will for your life right now and God's will for my life right now. But far too many people waste too much time trying to figure out what lies out there beyond these things. Well, I, preacher, I know all that. I, 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 I know that those are God's will. But are you doing them? You want to know what's over there when you're not even doing what you should do right here. And so what you need to do is do what you know is right right now and wait for God to reveal what you need to know later. In other words, while you're waiting for God to show what you don't know, do what you do know. Is that fair enough? Number three, and Brother Tyler hit on this good today. Just because someone is having a hard time doesn't mean they're out of God's will. Ooh, man, I wonder what they did. Wow, I wonder what sin is in their life. <laughs> Last Monday, Brother John took me and his boys to the Imperial Sand Dunes in Yuma, 
Arizona. 155,000 acres of nothing but sand. Tall sand, fun sand. We rented a, a four-wheeler and then we got a razor and we went racing around and, and we made our way to the Mexico border. There's a wall there, by the way. But we're there, and we took a picture, and I look off to my left, and there's this, this board. Listen, this is out in the middle of the desert. Nothing but sand. And there's this border patrol truck backed up to the wall, and he's sitting there. And I, I, I told Brother John, I asked him, I said, I wonder what that guy did to get that assignment. We teased the... the uh, the highway patrolman out here is like, dude, what would you do to get, to get sentenced to southwest Kansas? Hey, listen, just because somebody's going through a hard time in their life doesn't mean they're out of God's will. No, no, listen, it might mean that they're right smack dab in the center of his will and God's using that difficulty to do something great in their life. The disciples were doing what God told them to do when they got caught in the storm. What happened to Paul? Paul being in chains. That was part of God's will for his life. And so let's not judge people because they're going through difficult times. Enough of this nonsense that says if you'll just get in God's will and live there, then everything will be peace and prosperity. Listen to me tonight, church. That is not in this book. What's in this book is when you sign on for Jesus, there's going to be some hard times. There's going to be some trials. There's going to be some tests. And God's going to use those difficult times to stretch your faith. And here's the last one we'll be done. When others follow what they know to be God's will, support them in it. Look again at verse 14. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying the will of the Lord be done. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased. We stopped. Because at this point, they knew Paul was going to Jerusalem. And so they got on board with it. Look at verse 15. And after those days, we, <laughs> we, the ones who were telling Paul not to go, we, took up our carriages, and went up to Jerusalem. So put your Bibles away. Let me ask you some questions tonight. Are you doing God's known will for your life right now? I'm talking about the things that are clearly laid out in the Scriptures. The things I just gave you, praying every day, reading your Bible every day, doing your best to live a holy life, tithing and giving to missions and giving offerings to the Lord and, and being faithful in church and serving in ministry. Are you doing what you know right now God wants you to do? Well, 
preacher, probably not as, as well as, as I should be, then how in the world do you suppose you can know God's unknown will? How can you recognize God's unknown will if you're not even doing His known will right now? And if you're not doing what you know is right right now, what if God's will for your life tomorrow is something you don't like? Listen, the only way you know whether or not you'll obey God's will tomorrow is whether or not you're obeying it today. Here's the second question tonight. Are you standing in the way of others doing God's will? A lot of application here. It could be a parent. As I mentioned earlier, it could be a parent standing in the way of God's will for their child's life. God's spoken to them, and God's given them a pretty clear indication of what He wants them to do with the rest of their life, and maybe that's not fitting in with mom and dad's plan for their life. Can I just, can I just encourage you to do this, mom and dad? If you, if you were here in one of those services throughout the years, would you just go back in your mind right now to the day you stood on this platform or on the platform at our old property, and you dedicated your child to the Lord? You know what you did that day? You took your hands off the wheel. Come on. You say, God, we're giving him to you. We're giving her to you. You gave him to us. We're giving him to you. And whatever you want to do in their life and with their life, hey, we're all for it. <coughs> don't be an Indian giver. But I don't, I, I, I don't want my child to go to the mission field. Listen to me. Your child on the mission field in God's will is more safe for them than them being in the United States out of God's will. Your child being in the ministry, in God's will, is better for them being doing anything else outside of God's will. Maybe there's a spouse here tonight who's standing in the way of their husband or wife doing the will of God. They want to get involved in ministry. They want to be more faithful. They want, they want to be more involved. Yet maybe there's a husband or a wife who's tugging back on them and saying, no, I don't think so. Maybe they have their own job, their own paycheck. They're wanting to tithe. They're, they're wanting to give to missions. They're wanting to honor the Lord with their finances. But one of the spouses saying, no, nah, nah, we can't afford that. Are you standing in the way tonight of somebody doing God's will for their life? And here's my last question. Are you basing your future plans on what you want to do or on what God wants you to do? James addressed that over in James chapter 4. He said, go to now ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. James said, whoa, 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 time out. Watch it. Be careful. Well, here's what we're going to do. James says, back up a minute. This is what you should say. If the Lord will. Amen. If the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. We're going to do what God wants us to do, not what we want to do. Not what our family wants us to do. 
We're going to do what God wants us.